Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast with host Patrick Donahoe, author of the best-selling personal finance book, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, and one of the nation's most influential financial advisors. The Wealth Standard's focus this season is investing. 2020 opened with markets and asset prices at all-time highs, but many of us experience more financial uncertainty now than we did a decade ago. Although there are more choices and opportunities than ever before, the risk-to-reward ratio teeters on a global fulcrum, contributing to the roller coaster of emotions surrounding financial well-being. It seems like everyone is walking on eggshells. This season, we'll cover topics revolving around investment theory and strategy, atypical investments versus conventional investments, and the role of investing within personal wealth strategies. The Wealth Standard Podcast is committed to inspiring you to be more financially free. There is no better time to gain clarity about your wealth strategy, your investments, and your financial future than now. Hey, everyone. This is Patrick. Thank you for tuning in this week. This is going to be part one of a two-part series. Just so much to talk about with Richard Duncan and extract from him his perspective on the economy, what is going on from the Federal Reserve's standpoint, the central bank standpoint, and ultimately what is to come. Before I get to the introduction for Richard, as well as setting the stage for the interview, both parts of the interview, I wanted to tell you guys about a couple of things. First, a good friend of mine, Mike Dillard, many of you may know who he is. He has a really popular podcast and is one of the best online business people I know, an incredible marketer. Mike has put together an opportunity, and I'm not even sure if it's going to be out by the time this episode airs, but you guys can check in at uh, thewellstandard.com and specifically the show notes. Whether it's this episode or the next episode, it'll definitely be done by the next episode. But Mike has worked tirelessly to put together a community for the purpose of helping the business world, the entrepreneur world, to understand what's going on and to take advantage of the opportunity because the professional world is changing. The business world is changing. And he's put together this community of experts when it comes to consulting, online business, digital business. And it's this opportunity is essentially a community where you can learn from some incredible minds about what to do. What are some of the opportunities? What are first steps? What are second steps? So make sure you head over to the show notes. It's an incredible opportunity and is really in line with a lot of what was spoken about the last couple of seasons of the Wealth Standard podcast. So go check that out. Thewealthstandard.com, the link should be in the show notes. And then finally, Every episode has a video associated with it. So we created a new YouTube channel. I've talked about it a few times now. Head over to YouTube and subscribe. That would mean a lot to me. And you guys can actually watch uh, the videos as opposed to just listening to them. So all the interviews are being videoed and all past interviews are on there as well. And then finally, the editors I have are incredible. And so we have lots of written content that we are going to be distributing. And so make sure you're a part of our newsletter. Most of it will just be announcements associated with, you know, whether it's the Mike Dillard opportunity or other things that I'm paying attention to, as well as new episodes of the podcast. So make sure you head over to thewellstandard.com and check that out. Also, all the show notes for this episode, I haven't done the interview yet, but we are going to get into, I'm assuming, a lot of different material and all those links, book recommendations, Richard's company specifically will all be there. Okay, so let me introduce Richard briefly. 
So Richard, he's the author of three books. The first one's The Corruption of Capitalism, The New Depression, and The Dollar Crisis. Uh, and all these books were written kind of around the 2010 to 2012 mark. But Richard is a professional economist. He lives in Thailand. This interview is being done later in the evening for me, early in the morning for him. He's gracious enough to give us this time. But Richard, right now, full-time, he does macro, I think it's called Macro Trends is his publication, Macro Watch. So go ahead over to richardduncaneconomics.com and you can subscribe to that. Listeners of the podcast get 50% off. I think it's like 500 bucks for a yearly membership. So it's 250. And what he puts on there is essentially just these snippets and video analysis of what's going on in the economy. And they're fascinating. And he does it within 10 to 15 minutes, which is even more indicative of how brilliant he is by being able to chunk just really deep information into that short of a piece and you know 10 to 15 minute chunks. But Richard really understands the economy from not a like a philosophical perspective. There are lots of different schools of economics. Uh, Richard looks at things how they are. Right now, our monetary system operates a certain way. And although you know, there are many that wish it was a different way and put faults on how it is based on how it should be. The fact is, it isn't. Right now, our monetary system is a certain way. And what is occurring with the influence of the central bank, specifically the Federal Reserve in the United States, will and most likely will always have a role and a primary role when it comes to influencing, whether it's uh, trade, whether it's government, whether it's the global nature of the economy, it's always going to have a role. And so understanding what it is and then subsequently what signals and things to pay attention to so that you can position yourself, whether it's from an investment standpoint or just a personal standpoint with regards to you know business, how you can position yourself to take advantage of the situation based on what it is, not based on what it should be. And so Richard, now let me give you a little bit of his background. He started in Asia in uh, late 80s as the global head of investment strategy at ABN, AMRO Asset Management. And then he was worked in the financial sector specifically as a specialist at the World Bank. And then he headed equity research for Solomon Brothers in Bangkok. And he's also worked as a consultant to the IMF, the International Monetary Fund in Thailand during the Asia crisis. So as I mentioned, he now does full-time Macro Watch, which is a video-based uh, newsletter. This is Robert Kiyosaki's favorite economist, has been one of the keynote people on the Cashflow Wealth Summit that we've put on over the last couple of years, and it really has some insights that you're going to want to pay attention to as to how things are leading up to the crisis, and then what's going on amidst the crisis, and then what is likely to come in the subsequent months this year, next year, and so forth. For me, I believe that there has been a significant impact to the psychology of people, to the economy, to markets. And what's going on right now, I think, is the world, the economy, society is never going to be the same as it was. And really looking at what is happening right now will help you to know what the future looks like, or what signals and things to pay attention to, so that you can adapt and ultimately know what's coming. Because in the end, we can't control monetary policy. We can't control what this body does or this person does or what philosophy they should subscribe to. The fact is, things are happening around the world from monetary and a fiscal standpoint that most people just aren't aware of. And so becoming familiar with them, studying them, 
is ultimately going to position you to take most advantage of not just this environment, but future environments as well. So without further delay, let's cut to the first part of my interview with economist Richard Duncan. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining me. And I have Richard Duncan on with me, and he is in Thailand right now. It's late where I am and early where he is, but we made this work. And I'm really excited for this conversation, Richard. Again, thank you for taking the time. Patrick, it's my pleasure. Thank you. So I thought the best way to start, Richard, is to really form a context so that the listeners and viewers can know where you're coming from. So as we start to talk about what's going on now and what is uh, potentially going to occur in the future and what to look for, it's important to know kind of where your perspective is. So would you mind just briefly maybe talking about your qualifications, but then also describe what has been the evolution of monetary policy from the Federal Reserve and where we're at right now? Okay, so, well, I was born and grew up in Kentucky. I went to Vanderbilt. I then ended up backpacking around the world for a year after college and was really lucky. I got to see Thailand and Malaysia and Singapore in early 1984. It was booming economically. I realized, go east, young man. So I went back to business school for a couple of years at Babson College, and then I flew to Hong Kong and found a job in 1986 as a securities analyst working for a local Hong Kong Chinese stockbroking company. So I've spent almost all of my career working in Asia as first as an equities analyst and economist and strategist, managed large research departments for what's now HSBC Securities and, and Solomon Brothers in Thailand. I worked for a couple of years at the World Bank in Washington during the Asia crisis as a financial sector specialist. And then in 2005 and six, I was in London as the global head of investment strategy for ABN AMRO Asset Management, looking at all the asset classes globally. And I've written three books along the way. The first was The Dollar Crisis, which really, I believe, did forecast crisis of 2008 very accurately. So I've been lucky to live in Asia most of this time. And for many reasons, Asia had such extraordinary economic growth most of this period. But one of the first things I realized when I started working in Asia and saw all of the factories around southern China full of young women working for less than $5 a day, that these global imbalances were going to completely destabilize the world and deindustrialize the U.S., the extremely deflationary, at least in the direction of disinflation and deflation, and the rise of China, and the global implications of that geopolitically, but also economically, the consequences of the enormous trade imbalances and how they are financed. So that's my background. Now I produce a video newsletter called Macro Watch. So the way I think it's very useful to understand the world from the macro perspective is like this. You can think the global economy and all of the assets, classes, stocks, bonds, property, all of that is floating on an ocean of credit. And credit growth drives economic growth. It's been that way for many, many decades now. Anytime in the US since 1950, there were nine times between 1950 and 2009 when total credit grew by less than 2% adjusted for inflation. And every time credit grew by less than 2%, the U.S. went into a recession. 
And the recession didn't end until there was another big surge of credit expansion. Now, what do I mean by total credit? The total credit is equal to total debt. So you can think about this as all the debt, government debt, household sector debt, corporate debt, financial sector debt. Debt growth drives economic growth. The same thing as saying credit growth drives economic growth. Now, so in 2008, private sector couldn't continue servicing the interest on all of it, and total credit started to contract, and we started going into a depression. But the government responded with massive budget deficits, more than a trillion dollars a year for four years in a row. And then the Fed monetized a third of those budget deficits with three rounds of quantitative easing. So since 2008, credit growth has been just barely above the 2% recession threshold, as I call it. It hasn't been enough to drive the economy. So the Fed has had to step in and push up asset prices with very low interest rates. And what was four rounds of quantitative easing before this crisis started, the fourth having started in October last year with the repo problems. And so they pushed up the stock market and that created, that drove up American household sector net worth to extraordinarily high levels. And that wealth effect supplemented the credit growth and was sufficient as in combination to make the economy keep growing, although it wasn't growing very rapidly, but it was growing. And so credit growth drives economic growth. And when it's not high enough, Fed tries to intervene to push up asset prices and supplement the credit growth with asset price inflation. In other words, the government is managing the economy at the macro level. They're trying to, at least. And this has been going on at least since 1941, when World War II started. At that time, during World War II, government spending increased by five times in four years. And the Fed's holdings of government securities increased by 11 times, reflecting how much money the Fed created to help finance the war. And that increase in government debt and paper money creation during such a short period of time that investment that occurred by the government created new technologies and set off a two-decade-long economic boom in the U.S. that really circled much of the world. So the government has been managing the economy at the macro level one way or the other, sometimes better, sometimes worse since then. But in order to understand what's likely to happen with the markets, it's important as a starting point to understand that the government is trying to manage this try to anticipate what they're going to do next. And they make a lot of speeches. They tell you what they're going to try to do next. If you just listen to what they're saying, that really provides a lot of help in terms of understanding what's likely to occur next. So once this virus really started impacting the United States and the stock market started dropping, well, so I've done five macro watch videos on this subject since 1st of March. And the one on March 15th, was called recession or depression. And that was before people started calling this a depression and before the Fed launched quantitative easing infinity and before these trillion dollar government bills to support the economy. By that point, it was clear to me that if the stock market started falling 20%, 25% Fed would take radical action to try to drive the stock prices back up because they understand that price Inflation is the thing that's keeping the U.S. out of a severe recession. And they weren't just going to sit back and let asset price, let the stock market crash by 50%, which it would have without government intervention. 
more than 50%. I'm sure it was very expensive to start with. So by understanding this framework that how the government manages the economy, it does provide a lot of insight in what's likely to happen next in terms of movements in the markets. So when all this occurred, it didn't surprise you. When markets started to really disrupted, especially early on, when the Fed came to rescue and you saw these you know, stimulus bills being proposed, whether it was the early ones with regard to funding healthcare and those different organizations and now to small businesses, that didn't surprise you? No, I'm glad that they did. It wasn't certain that the government would do that because Congress, of course, is quite messy. You don't know for sure what the government is going to do it at the congressional level. It's easier to predict what the Fed is going to do because it's just controlled by far fewer people who understand the situation much more clearly than all the congressmen and senators. So you can never be entirely certain what Congress is going to do. But in that video called Recession or Depression on March 15th, my point was this, whether or not we have a recession or a depression is going to depend entirely on speed and the size of the government's policy response in terms of the size of the fiscal stimulus and the size of the monetary stimulus. So luckily, the government did respond quite quickly on both fronts. Not too much later than that, it was March 23rd, Fed announced QE Infinity, as people are calling it now, essentially buying limitless amounts of government bonds or as much as it required. And not too much later, Congress passed the first $2.2 trillion rescue bill, which they are topping up this week with another $500 billion. So that was a very good step in the right direction. That was a down payment. They did it quickly. And that's the reason that we are not in a great depression now. Had they not done that, all of the U.S. banks would now be in the process of failing. And the majority of the small and medium-sized businesses, as well as the majority of the U.S. corporations, would also be in the process of failing. And unemployment would be surging up to 30, if not 50%. So it was this government response that has kept us out of a Great Depression so far. So hopefully they're going to continue doing more of this because in this sort of crisis, there really is no sensible alternative. If they were just to step back and do nothing, then the government debt would explode anyway because the economy would collapse. So all the government tax revenues would disappear and the mandatory payments through things like Social Security and Medicare and unemployment insurance, all of those things would explode. And so the budget deficit would become enormously large anyway, and we wouldn't have an economy. So that doesn't make any sense. It's far better for them to do what they're doing now and keep government spending, sending out checks to individuals and propping up small and medium-sized businesses and also propping up corporations in the bank because the alternative is just complete depression, open-ended depression with no end in sight, with who knows what sort of social and geopolitical consequences. That's the other point too, which accelerates and magnifies the severity is, is that everything's global, right? So if something's done here, you know, in order to create the balance as it relates to the global economy, it's going to be done worldwide. But also if something were to, to be let go here, let's say the government did use kind of laissez-faire policy and didn't do anything, right? It wouldn't just impact the United States, it would impact the world. That's absolutely right. I mean, the U.S. could go into depression and that alone would be enough to throw the global economy into a depression, even if they tried to respond aggressively with their own fiscal and monetary policies, as they are doing to the best of their abilities. 
So looking at the scope of this, I mean, we're already at probably approaching almost $4 trillion in stimulus. I mean, that's just in a month and a half, almost two months. And how much larger it is than what occurred during 2008 and 2009. In your estimation, like how, how much can the government stimulate? Because now we're, there hasn't been much productivity at all in so many different sectors, which tells me the ripple effect is it's going to last for a long time. Does the government have enough firepower to be able to support this, this massive shock to the system? We're very fortunate that the United States is a very wealthy country. And so, yes, it does have the firepower. If the government uses all of its firepower as it would in any other war, we can win this war and come out the other side being quite similar to country we were when we went into this crisis. But if we don't, we will lose the war. And who knows what the country would look like or the world in that case. So, for example, the U.S. economy is last year, the GDP was about $21 trillion in size. And the government's debt relative to the GDP, government debt to GDP, was somewhere around, let's call it 110%. Right now, just for an extreme example, if the government had to spend $21 trillion propping up the economy over the next couple of years, then that would cause the government debt to GDP to double. 220% of GDP. Well, that's below where Japan's government debt to GDP is right now. Japan has more like 250% government debt to GDP. And they don't have double-digit interest rates. Their interest rates are zero. They don't have hyperinflation. They have very mild inflation and sometimes deflation. So the government at the fiscal level has enormous firepower and they need to use it. You know, it's going to be expensive. It's certainly going to cost $5 trillion, it looks like, at least, maybe $10 trillion. But if it does, then so be it. That's just the price we're going to have to pay, and luckily we can afford it. Now, the Fed can help finance this, uh, by, as it's doing now. Just over the last five weeks, the Fed has created $2.1 trillion. That has increased the size of their assets, which reflects how much money they create. It has increased the size of their total assets by 48% five weeks. Now, they're going to have to continue creating much more money to finance the large government budget deficits ahead. But during the crisis of 2008, between 2008 and 2014, when the third round of quantitative easing ended, the Fed's total assets increased by five times from $900 billion at the end of 2007 4.5 trillion, so a five-fold increase. You know, in the first 90 years or so, they had created 900 billion dollars. Then they increased that by five-fold over the next seven years. So, if the Fed were to increase its balance sheet five-fold this time from where it was when this crisis started, that would give them an additional almost 17 trillion dollars of firepower to buy government bonds and to support the economy in various other ways through making loans, as it's doing now through its alphabet soup of lending facilities that it's launched to inject credit into every corner of the economy. So we have enormous firepower. Now, the question is, though, will all of this eventually lead to high rates of inflation? After 2008, well, the government's debt effectively tripled between 2008 and now. And that was necessary to keep the economy growing. 
And as I said, the Fed's balance sheet increased by five times. Well, that didn't cause any significant inflation at the consumer price level in the United States. There was assets that were inflated. So that's where it affected it, but not from a consumer price standpoint. That's right. It created asset price inflation. But in part, that was part of the objective, push up asset prices to create a wealth effect. And that helped drive the economy and generate the economic growth that we've had over the last 12 years. Although, of course, it did increase income inequality. So it wasn't, certainly wasn't ideal in that respect, but it was necessary and hard to see what other alternatives there were other than collapse. So now this time, are we going to have inflation? Well, of course, much depends on how long the virus lasts and how much the government does increase its debt and how much new money the Fed does create. But the answer to this question is going to depend on whether globalization persists or not. Because one of the most important things that has occurred more or less during my lifetime is that we've moved from a gold-backed monetary system, which prevented the central bank from creating large amounts of new money because it had, up until 1968, Fed was required to own gold, the Federal Reserve notes, the dollars that it created. That only ended in 1968. And then the gold regime ended entirely in 1971 with the breakdown of Bretton Woods. But afterwards, there were no limits on how much money the Fed could create, except the fear that it would cause inflation, as large increases in money printing had always done in the past. But starting in the 1980s, the U.S. started running very large budget trade deficits with the rest of the world. It started, rather than only buying things in Michigan and Pennsylvania and New York State, having everything made in the United States with U.S. labor, as we had done up until then, we started buying things from other countries and started running very large trade deficits. And before long, we started buying lots and lots of things from countries with very, very low wages. And this was extremely deflationary. And these deflationary pressures from our enormous trade deficits and globalization, they offset the inflationary pressures that would normally result from large budget deficits and lots of paper money creation. So this combination of no longer having to back money with gold and globalization combined have created a completely new paradigm in which it has been possible, for instance, over the last 12 years, for the government to triple its debt and for the Fed to expand its balance sheet, what was five times in seven years without creating any inflation at all at the consumer price level. So globalization is the key. If globalization breaks down, this paradigm will collapse and we will move back into the world of the 1960s and 70s where budget deficits and paper money creation lead to double-digit inflation and very high interest rates. But if globalization persists, then it's very possible that the Fed could expand its asset size by another five times, creating, you know, as I said, another $17 trillion or so of new money without creating significant rates of inflation. So the trillion-dollar question is, will globalization survive or will it not survive? And this is not, not at all certain. Even before the virus broke out, we were more or less in a cold war with China. And I would say relations have deteriorated sharply since then. And also, of course, we had trade tariffs on China before this started. But now, by the way, they were supported by both parties, by the Republicans and the Democrats. 
So there was a very visible change in our relation with China and whether or not we wanted to continue it along the same lines that we had pursued for a number of decades. Because now it's become, I mean, much more political and I would even say social, right? Because there is a lot of finger pointing happening. You know, also when China shut down, that shut down the supply chain and, you know, they've been targeted and called hoarders, right? Because they wouldn't kind of release the stuff that was continued to be manufactured through the world supply chain. Do you think that the chance of globalization now or maintaining globalization is up? Or do you think it was strong enough where it could survive something like this, including the societal blowback? Well, regarding China, I think it's very important that we keep a balanced view. On the one hand, Americans have realized that we were not able to produce enough surgical masks and ventilators or even medicine that we need and had to import it. So hopefully, surely, this is going to result in some significant reindustrialization, onshoring of many products that we had previously imported. So that is a necessary thing and a good thing. But on the other hand, we have to be careful not to go too far in this blame game with China and heating up political rhetoric and turning China into an enemy and trying to blame them for all of our problems. Of course, there have been lots of rumors going around about where the virus came from and was it created in a lab. Of course, I don't know what happened, but I was in Hong Kong during SARS and no one said that came out of a lab. There have been plagues sweeping this humanity for thousands of years. They didn't come out of military labs. So we really need to be careful before we accuse people without knowing the facts. And even if it did escape from some sort of lab, that doesn't mean it they did it on purpose. Or, you know, so we need to maintain relations with all the countries in the world. And China is a very large competitor now and partner in some senses. We don't want to have another all-out war, cold war, as we did with the Soviet Union and move back into a stage where the world fragments into two competing blocks. I like living in Asia, and Asia would very likely come under at least land-based Asia from eastern China to somewhere not too far away from Europe would come under Chinese control if push really comes to shove. So that's not what we want to happen. And that doesn't have to happen. We can maintain our relations with China, but we have to be smart about it. The United States, once this virus crisis passes, the United States needs to understand that China is going to overtake the United States economically, technologically, and militarily within the next one to two decades if current trends continue, because China just invests so much more than the United States does. Last year, China overtook the United States in research and development for the first time. And if current trends continue by the end of this decade, they will be investing 40% more a year than the United States is. So China has already won the 5G race. If they win the AI race the way they have won the 5G race, then it would be the 21st artificial intelligence. It would be the 21st century equivalent of China having a new nuclear monopoly. Or the quantum computing race. You know, Rich, I think you should go into this a little bit more. And maybe could you distinguish between how the Central Bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve, 
has stimulated business through low interest rates, right? And I would say also as businesses have the ability to issue bonds, issue credit and buy back stock, right? For me, how I look at it is there hasn't been really a push as to what businesses should do in the United States with the stimulus, right? Low interest rates and so forth. But in China, it's more intentional, right? Where they create stimulus, but they direct the stimulus in certain areas, mainly toward the innovation. And that's what you're referring to right now. Am I getting that right? Could you maybe explain your take on what stimulus means to US-based companies versus what stimulus means to Chinese companies? Well, so public opinion in the United States and probably all countries swings back and forth over the decades, tends to swing too far in one direction. And then a few decades later, it's swung too far in the other direction. So, for instance, of course, during World War II, the United States government took over complete control of the economy, took over production, manufacturing, distribution, prices, labor, drafted people and sent them off to war to die. So there's complete government control over the economy. Well, of course, we don't want that. In 1957, the Soviet Union sent up Sputnik, and this sent off the United States into a panic, the first satellite. And the U.S government responded by investing very much more money in research and development and science. So the level of government investment then in the 60s was really very high in the United States. And as a result, we won the space race. We sent a man to the moon. And then even under President Reagan, invest had the government invest so much in the U.S. military that the Soviet Union couldn't keep up. So between all of this investment in rockets during NASA, which helped us develop intercontinental ballistic missiles that Russia couldn't afford, we bankrupted the Soviet Union through government investment. Now, since that time, sentiment has swung in part because of President Reagan's rhetoric, you know, government is the problem. Everyone bought into that and thought government was the problem. And now the government level of investment has been rolled back to such a small level that we are lagging behind. And this 5G should be recognized as our new Sputnik moment. Because if China gets artificial intelligence before we do, artificial general intelligence, where their AI can do anything that humans can do, and then from there it increases exponentially, they will have the rest of the world, including us, at their mercy. Now, I'm not anti-Chinese, but I just want us to be there first. You know, the history of the world teaches that countries with superior technology don't treat inferiors very kindly most of the time. So we don't want to be in a position where we will be a vulnerable second-rate power 20 years from now, which we will be if we do not radically change our approach toward government investment in new industries and technologies. And there's no reason that we can't afford to do this. Now, I've been working on a, a new book, my fourth book, for quite a long time now, and it was just about ready to go. And one of the main themes of this book was that over the next 10 years, the United States government must invest trillions of dollars in the industries of the future, such as artificial intelligence, neuroscience, genetic engineering, biotech, nanotech, robotics, and that the Fed could finance a good part of that. I argued both cases. I didn't put a specific total amount on it, but I used an example of $10 trillion. The U.S. invested $10 trillion more than it planned to at the moment over the next 10 years than we could easily afford that. That would only have taken U.S. government debt up to less than 150% of GDP 
if every last cent of that $10 trillion was totally wasted and contributed nothing whatsoever. So in worst case scenario, we would have had a debt level that Japan had 19 years ago. But the other case is the Fed could have just financed the whole thing by creating money and buying all the government debt, then it would have been free. So that was my theme. And well, now, of course, that would have been over 10 years, $10 trillion over 10 years. Well, suddenly the world has changed, which is going to require at the very least another chapter to my book, because instead of $10 trillion over 10 years, we're going to have three, if not $5 trillion this year over the next 12 months. And that's going to be an extraordinary, unprecedented economic experiment. If we come out of this with an extra, let's say, $5 trillion of government debt, with the Fed having printed an extra $5 trillion, and we don't have high rates of inflation, then what's the lesson we need to learn from this? The lesson is, if we can do $5 trillion over a couple of years, then we can certainly do $10 trillion over 10 years. And just for instance, the National Cancer Institute, its annual budget is $6 billion a year. That is the main agency for the U.S. government to invest in curing cancer, $6 billion a year. Cancer kills 600,000 Americans every year. Well, how about trying $60 billion a year or $600 billion a year? And my point is that a trillion dollars is a whole lot of money. If we have an investment program of that size, then we can cure all the diseases. We can expand life expectancy by decades. We can improve human happiness and well-being enormously, as well as economic prosperity, not only within the U.S., but would spill over around the world. And not inconsequently, we could also maintain our global preeminence and our national security and not be overtaken by China, which has a plan to beat us in all these areas, which they're currently doing. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens when we come out of the other side of this virus, how much debt we have, how large the Fed's balance sheet is, and how high is the inflation rate. Because there's never been an experiment like this in economics before, other than World War II, which we won with massive government debt and massive paper money creation and all that investment during World War II, the 20-year economic boom in the United States. And it given us, we've maintained our preeminence now for 75 years as a result of that victory, which was government directed and financed. So one of the, one of the questions, and I'm not sure how to articulate this, going this direction, like what are the unintended consequences of our monetary policy? Clearly there are benefits, right? Because I, I still believe that low interest rates create the idea of innovation. Businesses can use money and credit to expand, right? I know that there's been lacks in the standards of raising capital in the U.S., mainly because of a lot of the Silicon Valley and other areas in the U.S. that has a high concentration of, of startups and innovation and technology going on in all the different sectors that you've mentioned, right? So that's one way to do it. If we go even further, right, where you have more capital and more investment, more credit available, it's not even capital, credit available for people. What are the unintended consequences of that? Because in Japan, I believe negative interest rates are close to negative interest rates. At what point does the U.S. get to that point? And does negative interest rates or or really low interest rates negatively impact certain things that would be part of the maybe collateral damage of this type of initiative? Does Does that make sense? 
it makes sense. I mean, before coming to the possibility of negative interest rates and talking of negative consequences in general, people, of course, are influenced by the brilliant economist of the past. And in the past, creating a lot of money and having large budget deficits led to inflation and high interest rates. And that was very undesirable. Most important. So that was the main negative consequence that everyone fears is in everyone's mind, not very far in the back of their mind, pretty much in the front of their mind. This is going to lead to inflation, but it hasn't. Things have changed because of globalization, as I was saying earlier. So that was the main reason we never did this before. And the main reason we haven't tried it yet, because everyone is afraid of the inflationary consequences. That's the main worry. And of course, globalization breaks down, then that will reassert itself. That will reoccur if we return to having just a closed domestic economy without trade deficits. Now, in terms of negative interest rates, the government, it's unlikely the U.S. will have negative interest rates, I think, because even at like these high levels of debt, the more the government borrows, you know, the interest rates are the cost of renting money. So it depends on supply and demand. In the past, it only used to depend on the demand for borrowing money because the supply was gold and it was pretty much fixed or roughly fixed and simplifying matters a bit. So if the government demand for money increased a lot, then it pushed up the cost of renting money. It pushed up interest rates. But now we also can control the supply of money through paper money creation. So if the government borrows $10 trillion and the Fed prints $10 trillion, then there should be no change in the cost of renting money. If the government wants interest rates to go higher, they can borrow $15 trillion and just have the Fed borrow $10 trillion. And then the demand will be higher than the supply and interest rates will go up. So, I mean, those are extreme examples. I'm not suggesting that 10 or $15 trillion, but I'm just illustrate the demand and supply factors. The government should be able to control the level of interest depending on the amount it borrows relative to the amount of money the Fed creates. So this is not necessarily in this context, but this is, this is yield curve control, where the government or the central bank controls the level of interest rates all along the yield curve, depending on how much money they create and how much, which type of government bonds they buy. So in Japan, the Bank of Japan used to have a fixed amount of money that it announced it would create every year its quantitative easing program, but they realized that they didn't have to actually create that much money to hold interest rates at effectively zero, 10 basis points. So now they just create as much money as necessary to hold the 10-year Japanese government bond at 10 basis points, whatever amount of money that is. So the governments can hold the interest rates at any level they choose, depending on the balance between government borrowing, central bank money creation, buying those bonds. There are regulated institutions, even even social security that buys, you know, non-marketable government bonds and treasuries. If it's at a 0% interest rate, there's no income coming off of that, right? So there's no income coming off of it, unless it's just this massive amount of money, right? How do you have certain sectors, whether it's, you know, pensions or insurance companies or other interest sensitive type of setups, is there a negative impact to them? Well, so what we saw just as this virus started heating up in the U.S., was interest rates crashed long before the Fed cut interest rates. The market drove interest rates lower, not the Fed, because everyone sold their stocks and bonds and pushed 
bond prices up, which of course drives bond prices, bond yields down. Down, yeah. So the collapse in interest rates was a market-driven process, not mm-hmm. something orchestra. The Fed basically just followed in the market and eventually cut rates to zero. They were not the ten-year bond yield was what was it a low of thirty-eight basis points. So, yeah. <laughs> so that was market-driven. Now, if we want to have higher interest rates, then the government can orchestrate that by borrowing more money and hopefully investing it. Well, right now they're borrowing it and just giving people money so they won't go hungry. And so they'll continue to pay their rents and their mortgages, which is the right thing to do. In future years, if interest rates are too low, the government can borrow more and push interest rates higher and use that borrowed money to invest in the industries of the future and induce a new technological revolution that will massively enhance U.S. productivity and enable us to maintain our leading role in the world and maintain national security. And I like where your stance is there. I mean, we're at a point where this is how we're a debt-based society, the world is, and now it comes down to how it's directed and, and how do you use it to influence. And, and looking at you know what's going on right now and the response, I mean, it's the only way for the government to respond. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.